0: On this episode of the Truly Passive Income podcast, we're taking a deep dive into the world of self-storage syndications, with Drake Massa of Nomad Capital. We'll uncover some of the ways he identifies, finances, and analyzes self-storage opportunities, as well as the time commitment involved for active versus passive investors. Welcome to the Truly Passive Income podcast, I'm Neil. And I'm Clint. Our guest today is the amazing Drake Massa from Nomad Capital. He's the Acquisitions Director. We keep changing your title, but you are the Head of Acquisitions at Nomad Capital, which, full disclosure, is mine and Clint's partner in self-storage. Drake, why don't you give us a quick rundown of your background?
1: Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm excited to be here. I've listened to episodes in the past and they were useful and awesome. So I appreciate it for sure. You said it right, I lead all acquisitions. My name's Drake Massa. I guess my title per se is Director of Acquisitions and Capital Markets for here at Nomad Capital. That's what I do for them. A simple term, what that means is, hey, I do everything to find these deals, to underwrite these deals, to, hey, is this deal going to make sense? Are we going to make money? Are we going to lose money? When can we make money? And, and then everything up to find the financing for these deals of, hey, how can we afford these deals? Do we need to raise funds? How much funds we need to raise? At what extent do we need to raise them? What debt we're going to use, or we're going to use that. And I, my goal is to set everything up on a silver platter to make it easy for the founders of Nomad Capital to make the best decisions for what's best for ourselves and our investors to help people flip thematically faster than come to storage.
0: Gotcha. Real quick. So, what is your background? Where did you go to school and what would you study?
1: Yeah, I graduated from North Carolina, Wilmington, and I graduated May 21 with a double finance and marketing strategy degree so I finished up with two degrees from there graduated on time was a good student more about my background when I was in high school I founded a landscape design company to pay for college it allowed me to work very small amount of time throughout the year I would work you know six weeks a year and it paid for my college and school bought my house my truck and my boat so I've always been around working carve and everything like that and I kind of want to take the next step in that and Figure out, hey, what's something I can do to put my money to work to sit back and let it grow and do obviously still work hard, but live a good life.
0: Gotcha. So for passive investors new to commercial real estate, can you briefly explain the concept of self-storage facilities and why you might consider them a potential lucrative investment opportunity compared to other types of real estate from single family to industrial to large apartments?
1: Yeah, great question. Self-storage as a whole, I mean, it's not as sexy as these multifamily or other commercial real estate avenues, but in terms from an analytical standpoint, which is quite frankly, the difference between commercial real estate and residential real estate is it's all, look at the numbers. It doesn't really care about the emotions as much. It's more analytically driven. Self-storage the last five years, it leads every commercial real estate industry in terms of growth over this period. It also leads every industry realistically an investment world from mutual funds to mortgages to industrial to multifamily to short-term rentals during recessions as well so it's not sexy but it makes money and it makes it in a great passive way on top of it of expenses you're drastically lower than other avenues that's a cool point and the rents aren't too far off from other avenues so for instance the multifamily space. The average multifamily, they rents around 20, 21 bucks a foot annually in the self-storage space. It's about 16 bucks annually. So it's not too far off there, but the big difference, the big takeaway is the expenses. The expenses for these multifamily projects are about operating about 70% expense ratios and, for I mean, for self stores it's about 30. So it's drastically less expensive. You're making drastically more of that rent that you're getting and it's less of the headache. So, yeah, that's about it. So question, that, so about the asset, obviously it's had a, a boom over the last five to 10 years and the expense ratio certainly explains a lot of that. We're a very consumer-driven society and there's been significant growth, especially among the renter population versus homeowners over the last five to 10 years. I think it's really adding to some of the lucrative nature of the storage business. So, That is as an asset class that makes sense. Explain a little bit more about Not necessarily the asset, but the strategy of syndication and what you work versus me going out and buying a self-storage facility myself or partnering with Neil and us going and buy one versus the syndication model that Nomad's put together and what you go after, the margins that you have to look for because you know where the money's going. Explain that syndication model a little bit. Yeah, that's a great point. It's also Another good point you brought up is that another... Benefit of the self-storage aspect is, hey, it's 80% retail investors. It's not as REIT-oriented as other asset classes are. There's five REITs in this space. There's over 52,000 facilities. About 20% of those store facilities, about 11,000 facilities are owned by the REITs. Everything else are owned by groups like us or groups a lot bigger than us or normal mom and Joe. So it's easier to, to get into the space and comparisons, to the multifamily space. But what the big benefit of the syndication group is, hey, you can allow someone that their full-time job, and as I always say, it's not really our hobby, this is our full-time job, is to go out and find these massive value opportunities through these things. Our principals, Eric Hemingway and Levi, they've been in the industry since 2005. So we got, what, 20, almost 20 years of experience in the self-storage industry, and we have the data for all of those 18 years. And so you get to team up with someone that, hey, they have this experience. They have the ability to, to do other skills that you don't have. Or maybe your skill is being a doctor and to saving patients lives. Or maybe your skill is being a lawyer and, and being great with word. and Our skill is finding great value through the real estate and helping others you now a good return their money and sit back and do nothing. Our average returns are typically from an investor standpoint. And that low 20% IRR, around 20 to 23%. They're great returns. Yeah. So then the second aspect of what you brought up is a great point. And it's so like, we get to sit here and our whole strategy is conversion. So we're going to find a building that's tapped out on its limit of what it can do rent wise. Um, for instance, a majority of the buildings we buy, they're former retail buildings. They're former big box retail, like a Kmart or a Piggly Wiggly or their former old warehouses that are very large. And, and for them, their rent opportunity is capped at that five bucks or 10 bucks a foot. So what we do is we buy it at a cheap rate, cause they've been vacant for so long and just sitting there and no one knows what to do. Cause that industry isn't seceding anymore as much as it used to. Everything's online now. Um, so we buy it for relatively pennies of the dollars in comparison to the replacement cost. And then we change that asset class to a new industry where our ceiling cap now is in the 20. So we, we buy it based off the cap of five, and now the new cap is 20. But we get, instead of the purchase price B, um, from a ratio standpoint, we're getting it for pennies, not dollars. And we use our rent house construction to convert for half the price of a new development, realistically, because the bones, of the buildings, and the building itself are already there. And most importantly, our lead time is way less. So that's why we love the commercial space. We love syndicating with other people to mutual benefit everyone that We can do more projects and focus more on things that we're really good at. And we can also help other people collect money to sit back and enjoy the life they want to enjoy.
0: So you you mentioned conversions, and I want to dig into this just a little bit because there are, we talk a lot about sort of four core strategies that we have tried in some form or other at Nomad.
1: Yeah, so the four buckets, we call them the four buckets of self-storage are, they're pretty simple. The first bucket per se is just buy an existing facility. And typically the way to increase value there is to increase the market rent or better operate the system, run the property management better than previously. And what that typically means is a okay, tenants are past due or the market rates are behind, or. Just rent squeeze, basically. That's all of the rewards you'll see. And it's basically more of the purchase of that. And then how you can change the bottom line through rent growth and cap with that. Next bucket we call bucket two would be, Hey, the same principle. or we're going to buy an existing facility, but now we're going to expand it. So what that means is we can either expand it by, if it's a place we can add a second floor, do that and go from there or add a new building next door or add more units that way, or. Just expand in a two different ways. So it's same thing. That one, you're going to get a little bit more of a risk tolerance just because now we're going to in some development play to this and there's going to be some more risk allocated with that. But it's still safe because you have an existing facility already. And that's awesome because you're buying your existing facility. It's doing well and it's a little bit more expensive to buy than the next two assets we're going to talk about because they are already storage and it's already producing money and we're just going to expand on it. The next bucket is where we stay in the most is the conversion space. We get to purchase these buildings and these properties for drastically less on average or all-in, all-in cost, post-constructions about 65 to 80 bucks a foot year. If we're buying a self-storage as is, the purchase price is going to be about 150 to 225, depending on per foot, depending on what it is. And then if it's expansion opportunity, it's going to be a little bit less, but still in that north of 150 range. And then if we're going to a new development, which I'll talk about in a second, that's going to be around all in cost of 120 to 200, depending on land application. So the reason why we really like the conversion space is, hey, we're going to buy a building that's been vacant for years and retrofit and renovate it, um, be all in construction wise for half the price it'll take us to build new and be all in opening and half the time it'll take us from the new development. So. Obviously, there's more risk with this conversion in comparison to buying existing. It's a very calculated risk, and it's, and the best thing is when we're buying these buildings that's been vacant, the as-is value for these and the value we're buying them for is greater than what our purchase price is. And then after we finish construction, wise, is drastically gr- greater. I just ran a model not so long ago, and internally, are, after we finish construction, or loan to value for our current portfolio is sitting at like 58% after construction before we had rented, rent it. It's a drastic growth. And in comparison, if you're buying a property, it's going to be at a 70%. So it's we get to force value through our purchase through our construction. And then the final bucket is, is new development. So this is going to be the longest. This is going to be the m- most expensive from a construction standpoint. It's going to have the most risk allocated because it's going to take you 18 to 24 months to do. It's going to cost you, in our eyes, double the cost. It costs us to do conversions. Our number is a little different than the average Joe's because we do do construction, so we get the bill differently. But also comes with some really big rewards too, if done correctly and if you time it the right way. So those are the four buckets.
0: All right, so the four buckets are buy an existing facility and maybe it's an operational turnaround, raising rents, whatever. The other one is buy an existing and expand it, make it bigger, add more value that way. The third one is converting a building from something else into storage. And then last, we've got ground up development. And would you say that there's sort of a risk reward profile that starts at on buy and existing, you've got the lowest risk, but also the lowest reward. Then you've got buy existing and expand, you're maybe at medium risk, medium reward, then conversions you're also at sort of medium risk, maybe a little higher reward. And then finally, ground up development, you're dealing with the highest risk, but the highest potential reward. Is that a fair assessment?
1: Yeah, Neil, that's a great great assessment. And also to that, I view the conversions and the new development, hey, their reward is basically going to be about the same. And if anything, the conversions, quote unquote, reward could be even greater Because of the aspect that, hey, the barrier of entry is drastically lower, if that makes sense. Our basis of what we own the building for would be cheaper than what we're developing for. So our reward gets that much potential more savings indirectly in terms of cost and obligation. So I do the rewards the same for uh, conversions and development. And then you you hit it exactly right with the other two is the lower the risk, the lower the reward. And it's all about a calculator risk on what's on pay, what's the lowest risk we can do to maximize the highest reward and for us we believe those are the conversions got it so speaking about the conversions it, it brings to mind this is probably a bad example but somebody flipping a house the idea with flipping a house is that you you fix it up and you make it really nice and then you sell it and the reality is you usually don't make your money when you renovate it for cheap or you sell it for high you make your money when you bought it at the right price and that's the beauty of that asset class is that these buildings oftentimes have been sitting empty for years and sometimes decades So that you can buy them correctly. The difference in a flip versus the conversion strategy is that with a flip, you get paid once, right? You fix it up, you make it nice, you sell the property and you're done with it. I like the fact that you're using multiple strategies to analyze and underwrite these properties. So if something comes across your desk, you may not even know which of those four bins it might fit into. And it certainly may not work for three of them but it might work for the other whether it's expansion or conversion or new development and you can only control your cost on a new development as far as like the materials or the material cost the really only thing you can control there is the cost of the land versus with the conversion the replacement cost on the building is off honestly sometimes two to three times higher than the purchase price so it's you're making your money there when you bought it correctly but again, the same difference of in, in flipping a house, you're getting paid once versus this has a different outlook. So it, syndication as a whole or a syndicate is where everybody's pitching in together and the whole truly is greater than the sum of its parts, right? So you have different investors pooling funds in to take on bigger deals and more deals per year than any individual could do on their own in that same period of time. So it has tremendous ability to scale as well as create tremendous velocity and leverage off of the initial amount that was invested so with that in mind and with the multiple strategies but specifically getting down to not getting paid once with the four different strategies that you've talked about conversion all the way up through new development expansion whatever it may be what does that average range look like for a return from investor some income into your deal not just dollar amount but like from somebody that's thinking about a passive investment into a syndication deal give me a range of what kind of time frame are we talking about what kind of return Is it, are you selling the deals and they're out? Are the long-term holds? These are obviously very, you mentioned that they're recession resistant and inflation resistant assets. So we've talked sometimes about these type of assets that tend to have that stability are often golden geese. Are you sell it? Do you kill the golden goose? Or do you keep living off of it? So tell me about, depending on what the strategy is, give me a range of what the average investor's return and the average investor's timeline looks like. Yeah, that's a great question to go off your analogy of the home flipper right so what we're doing is instead of we're just a home flipper and we buy a home we fix it and we sell it what we do is hey we're going to buy a beachfront house we're going to convert it to a nine room hotel and then we're going to rent it out and then hold it long term and then that conversion that we do and now changes it to a new asset class that hey now we're not valued anymore well we were previously now we're valued as a new asset that's valued drastically higher so to go off on that how it looks for us is hey after we have doors open we've created enormous value because now we're no longer that home anymore we're now that hotel per se we're no longer that empty vacant retail building that trades at 8 to 11 caps we're now a luxury climate control self-storage facility that trades on average 492 in the last two years cap wise so we change it and we drastically increase value in that way. The next part of how it looks from an investment perspective is, and the time frame of that is, hey, the day we get the doors open, we have drastically created so much value that from a loan to value standpoint, we're now sitting in like that 55 to 60% loan of value. Awesome. That's a ton of value. Now we're going to start leasing this up and we're going to get some really good cash flows. Where I mentioned earlier on the conversation about how the rents on average are about 16 bucks nationally um, in a self-storage space. And we make drastically more of that dollar because of lower expenses. This is where we see those. Our expenses in our internal portfolio, on average, we're like 24% operation. The longer we hold a facility, the lower that number gets. Our longest facility, we're sitting in like the 15 to 16% expense ratio percentage-wise. So the longer we hold it, the more lucrative we get from a cash flow standpoint. And so how we get some of the returns back to the investors is Hey, on year four, five, six, three, four, five, six. Once we're finally stable and the market dictates, is hey, we got so much value now created through this property because we've changed it from in your example to single family home to the hotel. Hey, now we got so much value. Our average deal of stabilizations at like eighteen to twenty two percent loan to value standpoint. There's enormous value. So what we like to do, and into your analogy of the golden geese, we don't want to sell this because it's printing cash like crazy from a cash flow standpoint there's a ton of value that when if we need to sell or want to sell there's a ton of value we're going to make but why sell it we can hold on to this and everyone wins and we master terms that are going to be better than the stock market or better than you actively investing and everyone wins how our return outlook looks in a five-year standpoint we'll double your money in that in that time frame then over the 10 years we'll quadruple it so our normal deal, and from a syndication standpoint, looks like construction-wise, we're going to have it open and around month eight to ten, depending on everything goes well. Um, then from there, we're going to be the definition of stable. Um, according to our feasibility expert, is twelve straight months over ninety-two percent occupy. Um, our average deal is in that twelve straight months of ninety-two um, percent or greater occupancy is around month twenty-four to thirty. That's our average deal that we do. So, from there, on top of that, our break even point is around 40% occupied on average. So, we start collecting cash flows really early, 14 to 16 months after we start the deal. And then from there, around year four, five, or six, we choose to, hey, we don't want to sell this property, but we want to utilize some of this value we created. We can refinance and still keep our debt coverage, our debt yields. Drastically higher per se in comparison to other groups, because now we're sitting there with 80 20 value flipped the other way in comparison to normal. So, if we were staying in those top two buckets of just buying existing, your value increased over the five years, you're going to be around like, hey, we could, or, or our new loan to cost is now, our loan to value is 60% or 70%. We're at 20%. So, we have huge value then. So, we're going to refinance at a whatever rate we think is comfortable to not stress the deal too much because it is a golden goose like you said and let it keep on chugging and printing off cash and then around year 9, 10, 11, if we choose to sell or if not, do it again and keep on going. So at that year five mark, year four, five with the refinance, that would be the return of everyone's initial capital plus another lump sum or you just cash them out at that point? Yeah, so what we typically do, obviously it depends on what type of deal it is. If it's a conversion deal, We have enough equity that we can return the full capital back 100 plus an additional profit we can call it and then we still and all that comes to version refinance so it's non-taxable for our investors which is awesome and then on top of that they still stay in the deal and collect future cash flows moving forward of based off their ownership percentage so they'll sit there and collect another you know five to twelve percent a year but it's technically limited because now they're, now their money's out of the deal. So they can't have no cost basis that they're in on. So there is continue getting more residual moving forward and, and I hate to be corny, but it's truly passive. You have no barrier of entry. Now you're just sitting back and collecting that money to go sit on the beach or to stop working or whatever you want it to do. And then when we choose to sell, you're going to get another big payday. That's going to around double your investment because then the thing grew so much since then. So that I hope I answered the question. Yeah, it did. So the refinance that's coming back out, they get the return of the initial capital plus the refinance because their name's already on the deed. The refinance cash event comes out as non taxable income. But they are going to have, assuming there's preferred returns and the cash flows coming out of the property, that is going to be taxable. Talk to me about some of the offense and defense that you play with cost segs and accelerated depreciation and leaning on a defensive tax strategy to try to offset some of that. Yeah, great question right there. So in terms of offensive and defense, the strategy we do is to, and this is another reason why I and Levi, we always say, Hey, the ain't a hobby for us. This is our full-time job is it's our job to find them. best way for us to help shelter ourselves and our investors. And for that is, is we're going to maximize the current tax code, which help with CPAs and attorneys. And this is their professional job, but to maximize those things you mentioned of, of the business profits and proceeds that we have moving forward. So what we use is we use cost segregation and bonus appreciation. And it honestly, it helps the self-storage space drastically more than a lot of other industries because every individual visual unit is considered furniture. So it, it's taxed on, I don't know for sure, either a five or seven year depreciable expense. Um, so we typically about 50% around it, around 45 to 50% from our previous cost segs we've done. From a 100% basis, it's going to tear down even Florida. Oh, our purchase price. That's a loss technically that our investors get to utilize. An example that I use is, hey, we're going to pay you double your money and then some in five years. And it's not going to be taxable because of our cost segregations and in the way that we are turning money at the end. So I hope that answered it that way.
0: Gotcha. All right. I want to ask some detailed questions. What are the key factors that make a building suitable for conversion into a self-storage facility? And how are you identifying those opportunities in the market? Yeah. First off
1: is the location. That's the most important thing for self-storage. According to Bob Copper, the feasibility wizard in the industry, the number one reason why someone uses a self-storage facility is because they drive by it and the ease of use. So for us, location's huge, right? We get to maximize some of these facilities that are not being used the correct way in good areas of town. Our key marks that we buy, they're in typically a good area of town high traffic count on and high everything else. And I always like to think if I can't smell or see a McDonald's or a Walmart within range, and maybe it's not the best location for us. So that's what we love to do. We love to find the best location and we can buy these buildings for drastically cheaper than the land value is. And for us, for a lot of people, it's scary because they don't, the buildings look ugly and they, they need a little TLC, but for us, it's no big deal at all. The building's bones are good, the stormwater and all the underground earth movement, which is about 10 to 20% of total new development cost, is already done for us, practically free. The building location, which is 30% of the all-in budget per se for new development. It's already picked. It's already included for pennies on a dollar. And then the exterior of the building, for the most part of these buildings, are they're concrete walls that are ready to rock and roll. And yeah, so they're awesome locations. Bones on them are typically really good. When we come by, to fix up the roofs, fix up interiors, add units, add, replace, or re-add to the electrical and HVAC and make it look pretty and open the doors and start leasing it. All right, Drake. So you make this out really easy and really, really cheap. So it's obvious that everybody should jump into this asset class right away. So talk to me a little bit about, look, the podcast is called Truly Passive Income for a reason. There is nothing about what you're doing that is passive, certainly nothing that sounds easy, and honestly, it doesn't sound cheap either. So explain a little bit. I think you've given us a real good idea of what goes into that. I would love to hear how much it costs you to do some of that underwriting and how much time it takes you. It's obviously you've spent a lot of years leading up to this level of expertise to get here, but from the standpoint of the truly passive investor, talk to us about that a little bit, what it looks like, and the type of people that are investing in your deals. No, you're totally right. It is not easy, and it is not passive for me it is for y'all so what we do and why we like syndication is we can allow to utilize our experience and utilize our ability i was a construction estimator for our company for two years leading up to this and ran project management jobs for them i know how the construction space works i can utilize that experience to figure out hey how much is this going to cost forward. and our helps to do it internally is even better because we've been builders for the last 25 years Due diligence process isn't cheap. It doesn't sound as easy. My job is to make things sound easy or look easy for people to come in and to make passive money and sit back and do nothing. But it's nothing like that at all. So, I mean, I'm searching now 40 hours a week to find these buildings. They don't just pop up out of nowhere. And it's really hard to find these buildings and to negotiate these buildings. Now, I've learned how to become a really good negotiator through this process. Hey, a building that we recently locked in our contract is 50% cheaper than what he was asking for. So learning how to negotiate and be an effective negotiator and to figure out value and what needs that the sellers want and how we can help them get to those points and that regards is difficult. Then during the, once we're locked up moving forward to due diligence period, you got to put a decent money potentially non-refundable that after a certain period, if we choose, it doesn't work out, we ought to leave and lose that money. And the same thing on top of that is, Hey, during the due diligence period, we're going to spend on average 50 to $75,000 to make sure this building works. I'm going to go to this building multiple times. I want to show up with my construction team of about 12 to 15 subs. We're going to make sure everything works on get there with my engineers, make sure that the floors can withhold storage, make sure the roof can with with um hold the industrial needs that it needs to. Figure how much is gonna cost and then go from there. And then also the lovely pains of dealing with the zoning and the planning and dealing with people who don't really like their jobs. They want to make it miserable for you too. It's not really fun dealing with those people, but that's what I do and that's what I enjoy to do. I enjoy finding good value and helping people receive that value and seeing an old, ugly building turn into a cool, pretty is you know, cashed out.
0: I wanna go back a little bit and sort of underline some of the stuff that you talked about and give people an understanding of what they would need to be you. And I would say, one, they need experience as a construction estimator. They need experience underwriting self-storage and also have the past data of other storage facilities to back up those assumptions that you're making. They need time to search for, analyze, and underwrite a massive amount of deals each week, and they need to learn how to negotiate with recalcitrant sellers. Would you say that's pretty accurate?
1: Yeah, it's very accurate, and that's just a brief summary of what it entails. So yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. It's spending the hours on end, underwriting these deals, figuring out Hey, what's the demand and supply in this area for storage, right? Do We need to put storage there. Can this market hold an extra 500 to 800 extra storage units? Also, if it can't hold it, at what price? At what price can we effectively fill these units as quickly as possible? So I really pride myself in that every time I bring a property to view to the principals and we put it on our contract and we get our feasibility study back. Now, I'm always more conservative and write online to a T exactly how the indirectly the feasibility expert comes back as well it's definitely not something that i just learned overnight i've spent hours and hours and hours on end to craft this skill and it's my full-time job it's what all i do is sit down and look for deals find the deals and i can tell shortly now and explain it shortly now to make it seem like it's easy come easy go that's because i have hundreds and hundreds of hours on end of looking at these deals to tell right away of like okay, is this going to work? Is this not going to work? That's, I guess, in, in regards to that.
0: I want to try and give people sort of a an understanding of maybe what the funnel looks like from the number of deals that you're just like glancing at on a weekly basis down to the ones that you're maybe doing a little bit deeper of a dive to the ones that are maybe becoming candidates to then negotiating to getting under contract, going through due diligence. Walk me through sort of what you would say those stages are, and then out the other end, what the timeline of, okay, now we've now we've acquired it. Now, what does that timeline of getting it to operational look like?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I'm literally looking at hundreds of properties a week, if not a day. I got to the point where originally when I started this, I was underwriting a lot more of these properties in depth than my full model. That's about a five to six hour time period realistically but now i can look pretty easily and get some pretty good understanding because i've done so many of these Of hey what's gonna work what's worth me spending more time what is not worth it so i would probably say on a good week or looking at realistically about 100 deals of that 100 probably five percent if that maybe then less i'm gonna actually run a model on of the ones we run models on i'd probably say 5%, 5%, if that, we I contact the seller and start negotiating. Of those, I'd probably say, again, about 10% of those that we actually start negotiating and actually are doing something about, we spend an offer on. And then my our track record is, hey, once we send an offer and once we find that point that both sides mutually agree on, we're going all in on it. So that if we're moving there to forward, it's going to take about Two two weeks after that to get under official PSA contract, we're going we to have to bring in our lawyers and bring in about realistically five to 10 grand of lawyer's expense potentially. And then moving forward from there, we got about a list of 63 items on my due diligence list that I got to knock off that all in all over the course of the next 60 to 90 days during the examination period, or you're going to knock up about $50,000 or take. And then moving from there, typical closing terms are going to be 60 to 90 due diligence days, an additional 60 to 30 days after that will close. And then during that time period, we're going to have multiple site visits where we're going to bring our construction team to get a really good estimate. Um, we're going to take my initial estimate, which is just um, done through pictures and virtually and through my three years of experience. And then we're going to be there in person and actually hone in okay, we need more work here, less work here, XYZ. And then from there, we got to deal with all of the planning and zoning. That's Never typically too fun. A couple weeks. I'm getting you a zoning letters and everything along those lines. Our environmental studies, are going to take about 15 to 21 days. So our feasibility studies are going to take about five to 10 days. All the surveys are going to take about two weeks to a month, realistically. A handful of other surveys that need to be done of other supply and demand analysis that needs to be done, figuring out how much we can charge for these units, figuring out how much is going to cost us insurance-wise. I guess those are the hand of things that are done for the due diligence period. It's not really the full-time job. It's very easy for things to slip through. I know our due diligence list is 63 items. I know another group that we inspire to be, Spartan Investment Group, they're at 600 items, give or take. So, I mean, there's a ton of things that we got to do investment-wise in terms of due diligence search. And on top of it, I didn't talk about the capital market aspect of, hey, now we got to deal with the lenders and deal with the banks and, hey, what's the climate to lending debt these days if we're not going to raise the funds internally by cash, which doesn't always happen. So if we got to use leverage, how are we going to use the leverage at what cost are we going to use the leverage and go from there? And just dealing with the bank, that's going to take out of three weeks to a month to get their term sheets. And then on that, the appraisal and all of the underwriting they're going to do is going to be another week or two, the appraisal is going to be another two weeks or so. And then their lawyers come in, deal with our lawyers and all of the fun that they have lawyer talk wise takes another month. Yeah, so it's a lot. It's a lot during the process. And for me and our team, we really enjoy it. It's something that we have fun doing and, and it's awesome. I think at this point, people are probably why we invited you to come on and speak on the truly passive income podcast, because that sounds unbelievably labor-intensive, but the reality is this, we have people coming here looking for truly passive investment strategies. And, and here's the cold, hard truth. There's no such thing as a free lunch. There is no investment strategy that by itself is truly passive without doing a little bit of work. Now, the beauty of this is investors can come in and saddle most of that burden on Drake, on Levi, on Eric, and on the rest of the team, the asset management team, to do that work for you. That's the whole idea. And so if all of what you just described for the last 15, 20 minutes is required to have success in this strategy, what's required from the potential partners, the investors that are coming in as limited partners into the deal. And it's two things. Number one is capital because every deal has to have a combination of capital, time, and experience. And the second thing is to review the documentation. By the time it gets in front of an investor, you've done the lion's share of the work. You've done the underwriting, the construction, consultation, the engineering, the phase one, the phase two, anything else that needed to be done. By the time it makes its underwriting to an investor, their job is to look and see how much capital they have to invest, review the offer memorandum, review the legal, spend the amount of time, whether sometimes that might be 20, 30 minutes If they have a relationship with the operators. Sometimes it might be a few hours or a few days to talk to financial planners or whoever else may be involved. But it's an injection of time to underwrite the deal and the operators. After that, it's an injection of capital. And then sit back and look at the monthly updates or get your quarterly distribution. Everything that you're talking about has to be done for the deal to have success. The difference is it's lopsided to your side of the deal in terms of the amount of work being done. And from the investor standpoint, it's a minimum investment of time and then a capital injection. And that's the fuel that makes the whole thing run. That's exactly. you summarized that perfectly.
0: So we're running long on time here. And I wanna finish off by asking a question that we're trying to ask every one of our guests. This is not investing advice. I wanna make this clear. Drake, you have $100,000 cash right now. It's April of 2023. Where are you putting your money?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I, I'm actually at the point in my life right now. I don't have that. I have less than that. And I'm trying to scrape up every penny that I own find a way to throw it into our next deal. And I'm not just saying I actually beat that. The deal that we're currently in a contract in right now, it's my favorite deal. And I'm trying to find ways to be part of those capital investors, to put money back in and to obviously sit back and reap the rewards of the hard work that I worked and the team that ourselves we have do. So for me externally, that's what I would do. If I'm not that way, I would find ways myself to be more actively. I come from an entrepreneurial background, but that's a lot of work. I don't know if I want to do that. So that's where I'm sitting back and I'm trying to find every penny I can to put work with operators that I know I can trust and I know that have the experience and the track record to, uh, to allow me to sit back and to make about the same amount of money that I would actively, but way less work, and way less time restricted and to, uh, to reap the benefits of the reward and to live the life that I want to live. I really enjoy the line work I do, but not to be restricted by working and having to come to an income. And even if money won't be an option for me one day, I will still do what I do because I enjoy it. It won't be that I have to come to work. It'll be that I'm choosing to come. That's for me a really cool moment and that's what I'm going to try to do passively and that's why I really enjoy y'all's podcast is it talks about different ideas, how we can be truly passive and create that income to do such a thing.
0: All right, so thanks so much for coming on the show today. I, think, I hope people are coming away with a 35,000 foot view understanding of what's involved with self-storage underwriting and acquisition and construction estimation. Obviously we could stay here and talk about this for another four hours and people would still have only a small glimmer of understanding of what all is involved with it. But Drake, we really appreciate your time sharing with us today. If people want to find out more of what you're all about and contact you, what would be the best way for them to do that?
1: Yeah, I'm going to try to be a little more active on my LinkedIn. So it goes to my LinkedIn, it's Drake Massa. I got a page for Nomad Capital as well. I'm going to try to be more active on that as well and be more aggressive on that. So check that out as well as just Nomad Capital page. And other than that, just feel free to shoot me an email or text whenever. I'm a normal guy who loves sports, outdoors, and just talking real estate in general. So my email is drake at nomadcapital.us. love America. Yeah, I would love to talk more about any strategy or around Wilmington area, or I uh, go to, I'm state court for the Braves. If I'm in Atlanta watching a Braves game, maybe get a beer and talk more about it or worst case, just talk about life. So that's the way to handle me. I really appreciate it again, Neil. Honored
0: to be on the podcast and All right. I'm excited for the future. All right, thanks, man. Bye. Thank you so much for listening and watching the Truly Passive Income podcast. If you liked the show, if you think it would be useful for someone else, the greatest compliment that you could give us would be to share the episode. Leave a comment down below or leave us an honest review. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to let us know down below. And remember, with truly passive income comes freedom of time, place, and the freedom to pursue your higher purpose.